Welcome to Evan the Counselor Live. I'm Evan the Counselor. We have another podcast for you today, and I'm extremely excited because this is a close colleague of mine. She is an incredible human being. Her name is Dr. Carrie Mankey. Uh, so Carrie is a trauma survivor, but not only that, she is a medical professional. She has her doctorate of nursing. She's worked in ERs. Uh, with pain patients and other facilities. She is incredible. Um, so it's been a pleasure being able to work with her, and I thought, why not get her on the show? So like I mentioned, she is a trauma survivor. She wrote a book about her experience, and that is why she got into the medical profession, especially in the ER, so she could help people who have been through a similar type of sexual trauma, although with her, the experience she went through was so extreme. So it was really interesting for her to open up, tell her story, tell her story of healing. Um, so you really don't want to miss that. One of the other reasons I brought her on the show, um, not just because of the trauma aspect, but we do have an incredible conversation about trauma and trauma therapy, is about chronic pain. Um, so she is someone who's worked with chronic pain patients, and you all know that's a topic I love to talk about. It is so under-discussed based on how many people have it and based on how debilitating it is and how it affects people's mental health, yet we rarely hear about that. So we talk about everything, chronic pain, trauma. It's super cool to hear. It's actually interesting now that I think about it, when it came to trauma, she was the person who had experienced it and was the therapy patient. And it was cool to reflect that I'm a therapist who works with folks with trauma. But then on the other end of it, when we talk about chronic pain, I'm someone who's had a chronic condition and struggled with it for many years. And she was the provider. So it was a really cool exchange. So you really don't want to miss this. Um, check it out. Check out her material online, her book. Anyways, without further ado, this is Dr. Carrie Mankey. All right, Dr. Carrie Mankey, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? You. I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? Good. Well, you're live from San Diego, so you're, you can't be doing that poorly, right? No, it's beautiful 80 degrees today, as usual. Unless you hike Yosemite for 17 miles and <laughs> almost diapede exhaustion. But other yeah. than that, you're... Train for that would be my recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> Don't just jump into it. But no. yeah, so I'm super glad to, to have you on the show here. And yeah, so if you can, maybe just give the an overview of your background and who you are and how you got into doing what you're doing today. And we could go from there. That works. That works. So I am a trauma life coach and it's really interesting how I actually became a life coach. If you would have asked me two years ago, would you ever consider yourself to be a life coach? I would have rolled my eyes because I thought it was the stupidest profession. And now this is what I do. And it's just funny how that all works out. But my background is mainly in the medical field. I, I have a previous degree worked in sales. That was definitely not the right path for me. I had a life changing event when I was 21. And that's kind of what changed my whole trajectory of what I wanted to do in life. And that was really just wanting to help people. And so I became a nurse. I worked in the emergency department. I've also worked as a sexual assault nurse examiner um, in the forensic nursing field and then went and got my doctorate in nursing and had the unique opportunity to still work in the emergency department, but designing processes and operations and really doing improvements and safety based on research, which is another one of my passions. 
And through a leadership course I took, somebody thought, why don't you try do life coaching? I think you'd be really good at that. And I was starting to feel really stagnant in my career in healthcare and just seeing how healthcare has really become sick care, a lot of it, and just really wanted to help people in a different way. And I learned more about life coaching and found this is actually very similar to what I already do in my current job. So part of my job was being a mentor, a leader, a consultant to other nurses, other leaders. And I thought, I'm already kind of doing this profession, so why don't I try it? And with my expertise in trauma and my personal experience, it was just a very natural transition to becoming a trauma life coach. And now I also have the opportunity to manage a team of coaches, which is just super fun because then I get to interact with other coaches on a regular basis. That's awesome. It's funny you mentioned that because you hear that get thrown out all the time of like a life coach and like, what, you know, it's like, what does that actually mean? Can you just say you're a life coach one day and then you're a life coach? And um, but could, yeah, maybe you could explain a little bit more like what, what is a life coach? Because we hear that all the time. And I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of us wonder what, what does that really mean? And what does that entail? Yeah. And I think there's also a lot of stigma about the phrase itself anyways. Like, why do you need a coach to help you get through life? Uh, it sounds very millennial or something. <laughs> I think I need a life coach, but like, you know, like a, like a 60 year old gym teacher wearing sweats with like a whistle, like get up. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, I mean, the, the beauty of coaching is like the coach tailors their they're coaching to what you need. So think about like a coach on a sports team, right? Their job is to encourage you, to motivate you, to maybe point out a couple of new techniques for you to do something. Maybe you're a baseball player and you need a different stance. And so their job is to really help you identify some of the blind spots you have in life. And a life coach is such a broad term, but it really can help you walk through any thing in life, you know, whether it's a mental health issue, whether it's, you know, a transition in life, there's coaches who specialize in things like, what do I do with my spouse dies, there's financial coaches. And for myself, being a trauma life coach, I focus on helping people identify how their past trauma is showing up in their everyday life and relationships, and kind of pointing out those things that maybe they are just kind of stuck in a different mindset or a rut, and help them identify where they're being triggered, how their triggers are showing up and then help them to move forward with new mindsets and new ways of thinking and you know an increased confidence yeah and that's how I've kind of viewed it as a coach you know it's like more specialized mm -hmm. um, and you're seeing more and more of that in many different realms whether it's like a lot of um, like doulas like I have my cousin who's uh, mm -hmm. like like a breastfeeding doula and coach and then it's funny her mom and aunt is like a death coach doula, um, you know, cause she's like works in hospice. So it's, it's really interesting how that's being incorporated more into like a, a holistic style of care and in healthcare. And like here in Minnesota and my world in the addiction realm, uh, there's a, a very uh, big push for training and like recovery coaches and recovery navigators. And so a lot of people do this training and uh, now even certain insurance will bill for recovery coaches. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be really growing in popularity and that there really is a, a place for it. Um, yes. In like a holistic healthcare setting. Yeah. And I think especially since there's such a less stigma these days with mental health and now there's, it's more accessible too. 
you know, like you, you, some people might not be comfortable saying, I want to work with a licensed counselor, but I like the term coach better. And others might say vice versa. And the skill sets are not, I wouldn't say identical. It's not the same thing between therapy and coaching, but there's a lot of similarities there. And I'm sure you as a therapist do a lot of coaching as well in your, mm-hmm. with your clients. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I, when I started doing the social media piece of it, I thought like, okay, well, what would be a way I could like engage with my followers? You know, cause so many people ask like, Oh, can, can I see you for therapy? And, and I just didn't really want to go there. Um, and I thought, well, you know, maybe this would be an opportunity to be cool or to do some coaching because like with therapy, you know, we're, we're doing, we have to have a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Most people want to bill insurance. Uh, there's more formalities, more hoops to jump through. Um, and I thought, hey, maybe that would be more fun to do something more holistic where I can actually meet with someone and I don't have to hit interventions based on a treatment plan. And um, not that it's always that rigid, but, you know, being able to just have someone come like, what do you want to talk about? You know, it could be anything. It could be your social media stuff. It could be uh, career coaching or, you know, where I could give my input like input, whereas I'm a little bit more restricted. So I started doing that and I maybe see a handful of coaching clients as well. And I just, I find it to be really fun. And people ask, oh, can you be my therapist? And I'm, and I said, well, no, I, I don't do therapy with, you know, people I meet on social media, but I do coaching. Well, what does that mean? And usually I'll say it's like, like, it's like therapy, but it's more laid back and, yeah. you know, and goal focused. But also, I, you know, I'm not going to do a diagnosis. I'm not going to, you know, go there. However, I say, look, I can't unknow what I know. So like if we're working together and, you know, you're asking me, oh, well, I'm, I'm diagnosed with depression. You know, I'll give you my opinion. I'm just not going to put a formal diagnosis down. I may say, hey, you may want to get checked for this or, hey, I'm seeing signs of this. So, yeah, definitely similar to therapy, but yeah, more laid back and yeah, less formal. Yeah. And you really get to then tailor it to the client's goals, not necessarily what an insurance company dictates, like Mm -hmm. you said, your treatment plan. So it it gives you a lot more freedom, I feel like as the coach and as the client to really get to the goals that you want to achieve in that partnership. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's great. It's it's hard for some people though, because just the affordability of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And unfortunately you can't get reimbursement for doing coaching at this point, um, except under very specific circumstances and places. Um, but you know, if that's something you are able to do, I think it's worth it. And especially like with the return you get, you know, in making improvements and working on your goals and maybe being financially better off. Like if you work with a financial coach, um, you know, I do some stuff in real estate and there's a lot of coaches out there and people who have mm-hmm. done programs and there's a lot of quackery in it too. Don't get me wrong, you know, in all the life coaching stuff. So you really have to be discerning, you know, but a lot of people say, okay, I did this. I paid a good amount of money, but in return, I got so much more. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so again, I think having to be discerning and, you know, looking at someone like you, who's okay, you're an author, you have a medical background, you know, or like myself, who has a therapy background. And I've done some posts about this about like coaches, because like on in my world and social media, there's just a there's a ton of coaches. And a lot of them, 
you know, I, I, I consume their content and they're doing good work. A lot of times they're people like, let's just say with ADHD, that's a big topic, a ton of ADHD coaches, and they put stuff out there and they're not medical professionals. They're not mental health professionals, but they're sharing their own experience and they're, you know, very knowledgeable about their own condition, mm-hmm. right? They're very specific, like, you know, a lot of times, and we're going to talk more about that in the chronic as we talk about like pain in the medical system. But I mean, you see that a lot where you go into like a medical setting and often, mm-hmm. um, you know, a doctor may not have a specialty in that, but they like to think that, oh yeah, uh, you should do this, this, but then the patient actually knows a lot because of their experience and researching their own illness or having gone through it for years and years and it doesn't always vibe. So I think that you know, a lot of times the the coaches just based on their own personal experience are able to help people in a different way that a, a medical professional can't. I totally agree. And all the coaches I talk to, all of them have a personal reason and experience of why they got into coaching. You know, it's often a second career for people. And they're like, I got into this specific modality of coaching because my daughter almost died. I talked to a coach yesterday like that. And, you know, or I was really struggling financially after my husband died. So I wanted to help people who are in that same position so they can really lean on their own experience. And then they're usually people who like to also learn and research things. So they, they become experts in the area from experience and research. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. And I've, you know, I've seen, you know, so much success with people who, have engaged in that way, that peer-to-peer model. And you, know, you think of something like in my world, like AA, where you have sponsorship is a big part of the program. And mm-hmm. there's some clear boundaries even in AA as far as what a sponsor can and can't do. But basically the idea is I'm someone who's been through this. I'm going to give you suggestions based on my experience. And you could follow those if you want or not and call me if you need anything. You know, it's a little different, not as per se a coach, but there's a lot of similarities in AA being just based on this peer to peer model. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So how, I mean, if you care to share, how, how did you go from, because it sounds like you were 21 when you had this like prompting incident, right? But it wasn't until later, I, I wasn't aware of that, but it wasn't until much later that you decided to get into coaching. Um, how did, how did, what was the evolution there? So it's a really good question. Um, so after my, well, I can expand on that experience too, because yeah, it might be under, give more context. So when I was 21, I was stranger raped, stabbed and kidnapped. And it's, it's a miracle that I'm alive today. It's funny, I was talking to someone recently and I said, you know, I don't meet a lot of people with my same stories. It's just that they don't talk about it. And they said, Carrie, most of them aren't alive to share the story. And I had, I hadn't even thought of that, but it's true. Um, I, I was, you know, inches away from dying. And so it's just a miracle I'm alive. And after that experience, I struggled with PTSD for like classic PTSD for about two years, went through the stages in order, then you repeat all of them um, and just couldn't function very well because the hardest thing for me was, determining what was safe and what wasn't safe because that night where I went in Minneapolis I thought was safe and I was just the victim of an opportunity that night I just happened to be the person that 
they grabbed. And so I, I just, my entire life flipped upside down. I thankfully graduated college. Uh, this was before my senior year of college. I'm not sure how, but I wasn't functioning very well. I was in shock, couldn't sleep, had a lot of flashbacks. And after this, I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I think because I also didn't fully understand how I was still alive. And I've talked to a lot of people that have gone through like life or death situations and it just shatters your sense of reality of like, so I could wake up tomorrow and die. Now we all have that same mindset, but like when you've had that experience, you just don't know how to like even plan for the future really and think that far ahead. Cause you're like, I could die tomorrow. I, I almost did die yesterday. Um, so I ended up working in sales. I had a math degree and I just was very unfulfilled with that career. And I always had an interest in healthcare and helping people. I volunteered a lot. I enjoyed, you know, the medical community and just everything about it. And that's when I actually saw a career counselor or a career coach actually at the time. And she, um, she, she took, you know, I took all these aptitude tests and I scored very high in all the medical fields. And I just never really gave it enough thought. So then I, I thought, okay, nursing sounds like a profession I could maybe see myself in. And so I, I started nursing and I was like, yep, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. Like, this is, this is my new identity. This is why I'm alive. I'm supposed to be a nurse. I'm supposed to help other people that have been through what I went through. Hence why I really liked the emergency department because yeah. of the people that are there, the ones that are really sick they're there on the worst day of their life and it's a life or death situation for them so I could put myself in their position in the bed you know like what they're going through and then the the sexual assault victims that I did exams on I'm like I I know what this is like I've had this exam and I can totally relate and so once once I did that for a few years I thought I want to even have a bigger impact than what I do now. So that's when I went on to get the doctorate in nursing and started designing processes and operations and impacting patients on a greater scale than just a one-on-one interaction. Not to say that that's not impactful, but I was like, I can have a bigger reach if I'm in a leadership role in the hospital. And then started to see, you know what? I think my mission on earth is not just this. And when somebody mentioned that coaching thing to me and I published my book and I thought, I think I could probably even reach more people. And it's just my dream to help people find healing from trauma and just not live debilitated by it because I know what that's like. And when I realized that that's what coaching can do, I thought I'm going to go all into this profession and see what happens. I can always go back to nursing. I still love the emergency department. Even when I was a patient there, not that long ago, I was in, in my element being in the ER again, but I, I just, story. but like, I know that's always going to be a part of me and I can always go back. But for now, I want to help people with, give them the tools they need to not live debilitated by their trauma. And so it's it's like the next calling on my life, I guess, to do coaching and to see what happens with this profession. And I think all of these things, all of these steps to get to where I am right now is was all supposed to happen exactly the way it did, you know? And like, I don't think I would have been ready to coach people even a few years after my assault. It's been now 
what, 17 years. So I think it's just been the right progression needed. Yeah. To get to where I am. Like when you had the incident happen, did you engage in like, what was your experience gauging, engaging in the medical system? And did you like do therapy? Did you do any type of like trauma modalities in therapy? Like, how did you go from this horrific single incident trauma, which is very classic PTSD, which makes a lot of sense that it, it would happen that way after an event like that? How, how did you become functional? Like, was it some of it an element of time or was it um, interventions? That's a great question. So I, if left to my own wherewithal would probably have not gone to therapy because I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to relive it. That was horrific. And my mom literally drove me to counseling every single week. And I went to counseling for probably a year and a half on a weekly basis. And I'd say about a year after the incident is when I started EMDR. I think the first year was just kind of focusing on how do I not live in shock every day and just getting me to, to function in life, which was just basically how do I sleep? How do I, it was the basic needs that I needed met in that first year of, of counseling. How do I graduate school? And then after that, EMDR was really beneficial for me. And I did that for probably another year. And I've also revisited EMDR since then for other traumas in my life. I think it's a fantastic modality. I've also done brain spotting. Um, mm. I've done a few different kinds of EMDR. I think finding a trauma trained therapist is so important and so helpful. And I definitely don't ever claim to be one as a coach because yeah. some people have asked me, well, can you do that? I said, no, actually, I do believe that therapy has a place, especially when you're trained in that, because that's what got me to functioning. And then after that, it was basically having mentors, having, you know, other friends that functioned like coaches to help me kind of recognize the other areas of my life that were still being impacted by the trauma. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, because I'm, I'm trained in both of those EMDR and brain spotting. Would you be able to kind of just give us a, an overview of like what those are? And like, what was it like to do that? And the progression? And how did that? How did that change your experience? Yeah. So the way I like to describe it to people is you're going to have to dig up the traumatic event, but it's going to lessen the hold that it has over your brain and your nervous system by doing it. So you can do it in a safe setting with the therapist, which, cause it sounds really scary to bring it up. And what, from what I understand about it scientifically, which you probably could speak more to is the way that your brain is wired the event. And when something triggers the event, your brain plays this, in my mind, it plays a video. Like I'm immediately in a flashback and EMDR kind of rewires that. And what's so crazy about it is you can literally go through all of the emotions of PTSD in an hour counseling session with EMDR. You can go from wanting to punch the door to crying to like, it's just, you feel like you're on an emotional roller coaster when you're going through it. But when you're done, you're like, something's been re rearranged in there. And then when I recall that piece of the trauma, it doesn't have the same nervous system impact that it did before. It's fascinating. 
and it's it's hard work and it's exhausting but it is so worth it because you make fast progress if you actually allow the therapist to do what what they're supposed to do with you in that memory it's i think it's just incredible how it works yeah no it's thanks for sharing that i mean it's my experience too from the other side where you do it and I mean, I've had some clients like, you know, with brain spotting where you use a, like a pointer, I've had to grab it, you know, and, and I've and been jokingly threatened, but yeah. probably coming from a serious place. But at the same time, you know, it is like a sacrifice, you know, just like working out or something like you hate it when you're doing it, but you feel better afterwards. And that's just yep. a metaphor. It's not exactly what's happening, but in some ways, you know, under, under every trauma therapy I have found, and maybe others will disagree, is a basic element of exposure. And when mm -hmm. you go through a severe trauma, the last thing you want to do is think about it, right? Mm -hmm. You're just pushing it away. And when you do that, it kind of exacerbates and it, and it keeps the intrusive thoughts keep coming and you keep pushing them away. And it's almost as I'm thinking about it now, it's almost a way of your brain saying like, we need to deal with this. But then yep. your body being like, no, I can't. Right. And so you just carry this with you and you're ex re-experiencing those feelings. Right. I always say like the difference between a bad memory and a trauma is a trauma you are experiencing, right? Your, your brain and body feel like it is happening right now. Yep. And so the exposure piece is, um, you know, just like anything, like with anxiety or working out, right? You start, it's really difficult, but as you talk about it, whether it's prolonged exposure, EMDR, brain spotting, you're having to think about it. You're having to feel it, but instead of fighting it, you're actually kind of rolling with it. Mm -hmm. um, and when you do that, it, it kind of slowly takes away the pressure. And yeah. it, it's like, it's like, you're kind of eating an elephant one bite at a time. And over time, right, it just loses its hold. And as you process, I would say processing, whether through the eye movements or staring at fixed points or just talking about it, old, old school trauma therapy, talk about mm -hmm. it, right? Yeah. The processing, you're taking that information uh, that your brain is giving, you're putting it in its proper place, which is a bad past memory, right? Yeah. So you're not re-experiencing. Is that kind of what you experienced in that? That's very similar to what I'm experiencing. And the other thing I was thinking about when you were mentioning how it's similar to like exposure therapy, I, I'm terrified of spiders. I'm not afraid of a lot of stuff in life, but spiders freak me out. But if you were to ask me to hold this tiny itty bitty spider, I would freak out. My heart rate would go up. I'd be sweaty. I'd be freaked out. But logically, I know this spider is not going to hurt me. But something inside of me is saying, danger, danger, danger. You're holding a spider. And so I I feel like doing this form of therapy is, is a way for your brain to go, okay, so maybe the spider is scary. Maybe you don't know if it's poisonous or not. And something inside of me is triggering me to think I should feel danger right now. But logically, I know the spider's not dangerous. So logically, I know I'm not re-experiencing my sexual assault when I get triggered or the memory's coming, but my body thinks I am. So you allow like EMDR and brain spawning trauma therapy allows the logic to also be put into the memory and be like, oh, 
So when I see that trigger, when I drive by that location in Minneapolis, my body thinks you're in danger, you need to do something, fight or flight. And my brain now can go, oh, hold on a second. I have some logic. I'm not being raped again. I am safe today because like you said, it's put it in the right file cabinet. And I can say it's a bad memory, but it's not like persistent re-experiencing a flashback anymore. So how long did it take, would you say, and like how many sessions about for you to really start seeing results? And when did you get to a point where you decided, I think I'm good? Or do you still do it? Do you think you mentioned that you do sometimes go back, maybe get a little refresher course? But what was that like for you? I I would say it took probably a year of every other week sessions to process the sexual assault. And then I actually then have also done EMDR to process some of the memories from my abusive marriage. So unfortunately, because I think my brain was just so mush, (laughs) traumatized, um, and just from other issues I had, I actually ended up uh, getting into a relationship and then marrying somebody who was very abusive and ended up with domestic violence. And I attribute some of that to, you know, prior to my assault, but some of that was also because I just don't feel like I was just the healthiest brain wise yet. And so I've gone back and revisited some of my assault and also then how it kind of tied into the violence I experienced in my marriage. So I would say for the actual assault, it took about a year of EMDR. And then I've probably done, you know, EMDR and brain spotting another six months, a couple of times since then. What do you think of brain spotting compared to EMDR? I I thought it was strange. Well, both of them are strange how they work. <laughs> um, it was fascinating to me that my brain would decide where to look in a certain spot, like that that was easy for me to figure out when, you know, they ask you to find a spot yeah. that makes sense. And I think I also got really good at EMDR, not good at it, but I was very comfortable with the emotions yeah. that were going to come. So ha- that prepared me for what brain spotting was going to be like. And I made really quick progress with brain spotting because I had done EMDR. And that's also what my therapist said. She said, had you not done EMDR, I don't think this would have been as quick and is beneficial for you because it's it's similar, but like you have to know how to let your body go there almost. So was it a different spotting. therapist? Yes. Who did brain spotting with you? Yeah. Yes. Did you find it to be more intense? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, for sure. And just to give people context who are listening, you know, like EMDR, the premise is using something called bilateral stimulation, basically means anything crossing the center line of your body. And originally it was eye movement. So your eyes basically moving back and forth, left, right. Um, or sometimes you use like pulsar, like pulses in your hand, like these little vibrating uh, things you hold on to, tappers, sometimes they call them or it vibrates left, right, left, right. And you, know, and you could change the intensity, speed. Uh, sometimes people tap like left shoulder, right shoulder, almost like giving yourself a hug. So there's, almost, there's a lot of different ways some people use music, um, you know, like one ear to the other. What, which ones, did you try different ones? I've done um, almost all of those. What did you uh, like? So I've it's done different little, for everyone. The buzzy things I think worked best for me because that's usually I, the preferred method of a lot of people is doing the hand buzzers. The eyes sometimes can be a little strenuous for people. It can. And I felt like 
if I could keep my eyes closed, it got even more intense because I took away that one sense almost. So I preferred to do it with my eyes closed with the buzzy things in my hand and then just allowed my brain to yeah. do what it needed to do rather than focusing on doing something with my eyes. For sure. And so, yeah, and to give people a little insight into it as well, I mean, uh, just a very simplistic way of looking at it or a very standard procedure, you know, would be, you know, thinking about a specific memory often or a topic or something associated with the trauma, you know, or a very early experience, a keystone experience, and giving yourself an opportunity to think about it. And really, a lot, a lot of this is allowing your brain to do its own healing and processing. There's not a ton of intervention from the therapist. In fact, you're supposed to be as hands off as possible, allowing your brain to heal itself. And you do, um, as you think about the trauma, you start the pulses or the stimulation, and then your mind just kind of almost sends you what it needs to, right? And sometimes that's, you know, really uh, disorienting, or it could be really difficult because you're reliving this stuff, but you keep doing it over and over, you know, and in, in session after session and measuring um, how stressful, how distressing that memory is, right? And you just keep doing it until it's almost nothing. And then you maybe move on to the next one and the next one. And a lot of times you do one and it helps with the other. And it's just a process. And for some people, it's shorter, some people, it's longer, sometimes it's a little harder. If you have like what's called complex trauma, where it's like from childhood, you just have kind of death by a 1000 cuts, they call it where it's like you have you know, childhood trauma and all these adverse events. Um, and, you know, and brain spotting is similar, except it's pretty much the same premise, except instead of movements so your eyes are back and forth, you're literally finding eye position. So basically, different places your eyes look and it's plane of, of view and that associate most with it right so that's why it's sometimes so intense because you find these spots and it's just like whoa mm -hmm. and it's hard to say why it is that when you look in a certain direction it just gets the wheels turning right so for all these there's different ways to do it you know because everyone's different uh, sometimes you have to turn the volume down a little bit I always think of it like like you're you're like a recording artist right and i'm just the guy in the back with all those buttons and i'm like moving the let you know the levers and i'm just trying to let you make the music but i'm just kind of back there trying to make it sound right um would you say that's a good description of kind of yeah. your experience with it yeah i think one of the things my brain was so good at before i did emdr and brain spotting was dissociating mm. and it doesn't allow you to do that necessarily. I mean, you still can, but your yeah. brain is coping by completely shutting off and because it doesn't want to remember that memory. So there's like the two copings. There's the one where your brain is like, no, we need to focus on this. And the other one going, nope, clear, done. And so by having like this thing in your hands or a, a fixed eye position, it makes your brain do the processing that it needs to. And it's just so powerful because my brain was like, oh crap, we really like dissociating. It's really comfortable. And it's it's not the healthiest way to then process the trauma. It's avoidance, right? It's an extreme yeah. form of avoidance. And that's kind of the enemy of uh, you know experiencing trauma or really anything in life, right? That mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, bad experience, you know, is is avoidance. Um, and it, you know, these modalities kind of force you in a way, you don't have to do it, but kind of forces you to 
no longer avoid it. And over time, it becomes less and less scary. Yeah. Like you said, if you're afraid of spiders, well, let's just say you have a little spider that can't hurt you. The more time you spend with it, the less of scary it becomes, right? It, it yeah. right sizes the fear. Yes. Because um, your brain, you know, as a survival mecha- mechanism generalizes the, um, you know, the experience. So like you said, I'm walking down the street while well, I was attacked on a street, streets are bad. Mm-hmm. So it's like really relearning what is safe, what is not, what is reality and what is just your mind trying to protect you. Yeah. So how long did it take for you? Like, let's say on the initial trauma therapy for that big incident, how long did it take before you really started to be like, wow, this is like doing something and I'm feeling better and probably four to six sessions. I started to even notice the difference. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The first couple, you're just getting used to it and you're like, what just happened to me? I feel like my brain just worked out and um mm-hmm. it brings up other stuff but then you start to like it, it's just quick that like once you allow your brain to do what it's supposed to do in the healing process you start to realize oh wow i'm now rating that not high as intensity of a memory okay maybe i can try another one let's try another portion mm-hmm. of this memory so i always tell people if you can get through the first like three or four sessions and just trust the process you're going to see progress it might be slow but to me that that's fast progress compared to other you know forms of talk therapy or things like that yeah and it's you know it said that it's supposed to one of the benefits not that talking doesn't necessarily work you know that it's supposed to happen quicker in a few mm-hmm. sessions and then you know there's a ton of other good trauma modalities a lot of them kind of borrow stuff from each other um you know that are all proven to be effective. So it's just a matter of, you know, do you trust your therapist? What works well for you? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there's so many different routes to go about it. Now, I, I only did, I mean, the only times I've done EMDR brain spotting myself were like in the training, you know, where you like do it on each other. So that's always an interesting experience doing with another therapist. And the EMDR was pretty cool. But like when I did brain spotting, there was one time I did it and it literally rocketed me to a parallel universe. Like, I mean, not literally, but like I, like I dissociated, mm. but, but not in like a trauma-y way, you know, where I'm like gone. Um, but I was completely aware as it was happening the entire time. Like yeah. I went inside, like it was fucking crazy. And, and I'm a skeptic right? I am very much a skeptic of a lot of, even though I'm like trained, like I'm still, I always look at things with a skeptical eye. So I'm like, well, look, I mean, there's good research on this or people get benefit. I'm going to get trained in it. But the whole time I'm like, all right, is this, cause it, the whole thing feels really quacky. It does. <laughs> and, and it took a little while for people to warm up to it because it's just like, this is too crazy to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it just works. And you were talking about this before of like, well, I don't know how it works. I don't think anyone knows how it works really. Right. It's all just our best guess. We just know that it does. And I mean, there's some logical reasons why like that element of exposure and it makes sense. It's just, we only have so much understanding of the brain. Why is it that when I put my eyes back and forth and we're starting to learn more about it and brain scans and, and that kind of thing, but you know, brain spotting, why is it when I look in this direction, it, 
I, I feel the experience more than when I look in this direction, right? You could use all these things for calming too and resourcing. Okay, when I um, look in this direction, I actually feel calmer. I can use that when I need to use it as a coping mechanism. And yeah, but so I, I did that. And this maybe could be a good segue, but like, you know, I did it on, you know, the chronic pain that I had, you know, and the, the spinal condition I had. And it literally sent me into my body and basically my brain and my body like had a conversation in front of me. That's fascinating. It was literally like, it was kind of like you two sit down and work this thing out. Cause I didn't realize how much my mind and body were at odds where my mind, I want to do all these things and be active and push myself. But then my body's like, I can't. Right. So it was almost like my brain had been bullying my body for years. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was, it was absolutely crazy to like kind of watch this thing work out and play out. And again, I was aware the whole time. I'm just like, what the hell is going (laughs) on? Right. And I really did. It really did for quite a while, at least, you know, give me some good insight um, into, you know, basically like at the end of it, you know, it was was just one session of me doing this in a training for 15 minutes, but it kind of said, you know, just be easier on yourself. Mm -hmm. And that, and I took that away from it, you know, and it was like, and I kind of took that to the bank. Um, but yeah, I mean, so for anyone listening and there is so much more awareness about trauma, which is a good thing. People ask me about EMDR all the time. It is sometimes hard and confusing to, in a fast way, explain, but I think you did a great job of explaining. It's awesome to hear your story, you know, to give others hope because like what you went through was extreme. Mm -hmm. Like that was fucking extreme, you know, like, and so I think a lot of people could glean some hope from that of like what you were able to accomplish after going through something like that. Cause a lot of people may not come back from that. Um, you know, or, you know, or just as a function of time, maybe they feel better, you know, five years later, it's, they kind of learn to cope with it, but it never heals in the way it could, right. It'd be like getting a leg injury and you can't walk for a while, but then eventually you could kind of walk around with a crutch and get around and it's better. It doesn't hurt quite as much, but you you don't heal to the level which you can. So it's really cool to see that, you know, that you were able to do that. That's really the hope I want to give people that this is possible, you know, to like live a full life, to have healthy relationships, to have something like this, not impact you every day. Yeah. It's possible. One of the things I think about too, and when I assess people's trauma or trying to get them to understand it a little better is like, what decisions do you make based on the fact that you experience that or trying to imagine what, like, how would your life be different if you hadn't, right? And then they start to say, well, I would, I wouldn't avoid this. Maybe I wouldn't get into these types of relationships. And so when you're doing the healing process, trying to get to a point where you no longer feel compelled to make decisions based on the trauma you've experienced. That's where the freedom is, is you don't Mm -hmm. have to, you don't have to let that guide you or rule you or be so afraid that you avoid it. Yeah. That's where you really get to, like you said, the freedom and living life to the fullest. Yeah. Well, hey, that that's awesome. Um, and it's so cool to hear. It's really interesting for me to hear from the other side. I mean, I see it all the time, but 
it's really cool to hear your experience, you know, as a, as a client doing it. Um, and, but yeah, so I thought maybe this could be a good time to transition uh, into talking about chronic pain. And just to give you a little reference point, I do videos on it and very, not a lot of people do, especially mental health professionals, very rarely talked about. And there's a very high percentage of people who experience chronic pain and chronic illness. Um, at some point, I mean, it could be like 30, 40, I mean, a crazy number, but it's so debilitating. And, you know, as I was going through it, I never really talked to anyone else who had, I just kind of felt like I was alone with it. And I made like one social media post about chronic pain and it kind of blew up. And mm -hmm. I was like, huh. And more people, I don't know if people know what like stitching a video is, where basically it's just you reacting to the video or reposting it or doing a duet it's called um like the the number of people who did that was crazy and i actually like had to stop watching it because it was so freaking sad like whenever i do i mean whenever i do posts on this like i i like can't watch it like i, I do but I, it's just so sad it's just someone alone and um and it really made me realize just how big of an issue it is and i've never i've never heard a mental health professional talk about it I've, you know, I've, maybe I've seen, you know, some trainings and stuff here and there, but it's, you know, we don't get trained in it. It's not something we talk about. Um, so I thought this could be an opportunity given your experience in the medical field, and especially the ER would be a unique experience. And you had mentioned that you'd worked with pain patients before to kind of get your perspective on it and see what that looks like from the provider side. Um, yeah. I know it was really general, but yeah, I actually have a, um, a story that doesn't haunt me to this day, but that I still remember when I worked as an ER nurse, we had this frequent flyer patient come in longstanding history of drug use and claimed he was clean. This time he came in, I was his nurse he said he had back pain. He always had pain somewhere. And, um, we, we don't really do MRIs in the emergency department. We're there to treat your emergency. And so we sent him on his way. I don't think he got any pain medication, which the other patient in the room next door got pain medication for the same problem. So, I mean, we, we treat them differently, right? Based on their history, based on their, how they're treating us as well as personalities. And um, I just, I rolled my eyes when he came in again, like two days later. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, he's, he's usually drug seeking when he's coming in. And they warn you about this in nursing school. Like, do not oh, yeah. assume patients are drug seeking. You see a lot of them in the emergency department. And the doctor had a lot of compassion for him. When he came back two days ago, he got a different doctor and he said, let's just scan your back. He had a herniated discs, like multiple in his back. And he had legitimate pain and he'd been walking around like this for months and nobody would treat him and nobody would give him pain medicine. And as somebody who's been on drugs, he had a high tolerance for pain medication. So he needed a lot of pain medication to actually make a difference in his pain, but he had chronic pain and we judged him and didn't treat him appropriately. And that always stuck with me because I thought, I went along with the rest of the team in the emergency department because I saw the patient both times he was there and three yep. other times in the last month. And we didn't actually take it seriously, but he had chronic pain. And from that day forward, I said, I'm not going to take this for granted anymore when somebody tells me they have pain because I don't know if they have pain. I've dealt with chronic pain myself and not necessarily like 
chronic back issues or things like that, but I've had chronic illnesses, things that people would look at me and go, you look like a really healthy person. And I've had tons of medical issues my entire life. So it's so easy to judge someone by looking at them and saying, this is your lifestyle. I don't think you actually have chronic pain. And we do it in the medical community. It's so sad to me. And so I use this experience then when I became an advanced practice nurse and I actually got to function as a pain advanced practice nurse. Like I did consults on patients with chronic pain and to talk to them and hear their stories about what they lived through every day. And the fact that they walk around just like everybody else on earth, but they have chronic pain and nobody knows, and they can't stop thinking about the pain. Like when you are in so much pain, it literally consumes every thought of your entire day. How do you get through life? And so I just developed an empathy for them that I had never had before after talking to them and learning about their stories. And then the fact that they still function and do, you know, like they still go to a job, they still do everything else that the rest of us do and they're expected to, but they're expected to just learn how to live with it. And a lot of times there aren't great treatment modalities out there for them. And so it was, it was kind of fun, honestly, to try to come up with creative plans for them because yeah. there's so many different treatments out there. And some of them, when they get to a certain point, they're, they're like, I'll try anything. So we, we try, you know, different forms of not just pills and patches, but we try, you know, different energy work. We try different non pharmaceuticals like there's just there's so many different things to do you have to get really creative when you treat chronic pain and that was really just like fascinating to me when when I did this for a you know several months that we we had to think of outside the box on how to treat these patients because they're not your typical this is what they come in is wrong and this is what we use to fix it yeah that, that's awesome I mean and, and that's kind of what I wanted to ask you too about being in the ER and the drug seeking and it's and it is really complicated and my views have changed given my experience and what I've seen but it is there's like there's two sides to it right because especially now with like the opioid epidemic right and giving just insane amounts of opioids to anyone with any pain you know getting them addicted and that that becoming a worse problem than whatever condition they had themselves and using these powerful meds that really are probably best served for short-term acute pain, mm -hmm. uh, long-term, you know, then eventually you build up a tolerance and it stops working the same way. Then if you stop doing it, you go into horrible withdrawals and it, it, it that in itself is life-consuming. However, on the other side, some people have legit pain that they just, there's nothing else that helps. Yeah. Right. And they have, or at least they haven't found it yet. And so like you were saying, we often give up because we try all these things, they don't work. This is the only thing that works is the pills, right? So, and this is what I need to function, but then they go to the ER, wherever, ER is probably not the best place to start, right? But mm -hmm. you, you know, you get shunned away or you call the med seeker. And so, and some people do that. I mean, there is legitimate, 
you know, drug, you know, people who are addicted to drugs who don't have pain. They used to go in the height of the opiate epidemic. Let's say you go down to Florida, you go to the sketchy pain clinic where there's thousands of people in the waiting room and they're just writing scripts. And then you go into the doctor, you get an MRI and they squeeze their back and do, you know, whatever they can and get a diagnosis and really don't have the pain issue because there are people who do that. Uh, where it is less of a, of a physical thing and more of an, an addiction, but there's so many, but then people get lumped into that. And then at some point the line gets blurred mm -hmm. because you're like, do I need this? Do I not? Like, am I addicted to these? Because then over time, right, that actually can make the pain worse if you're mm -hmm. on them for too long. So it's, it's just really complicated is what I'm trying to say, it I guess. And, um, and I've, guess grown more compassion for people who are you know caught in that cycle of opiates because otherwise and I find this too that a lot of these folks on opiates would much rather not be on them right yeah. they're dependent right so everything kind of looks like addiction but really at the core like they they would just if, if their pain could go away they would just throw the damn pills out right away it's not this like emotional connection that you know, your, your average addict or, or whatever would have. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And, and I guess a little context as well of, of how we met, um, you know, we're both working on a, a startup app that just is coming out now called Cadre, right? Where we are making videos and you're, you know, heading up the coaching department, but, you know, like a, a, a kind of all purpose and maybe I'm not explaining well like you know wellness app um, with series coaching videos so that's how we got connected both you know helping and working on this thing um, and I'm doing a series for the app on chronic pain and wanting to make this part of it um, and one of the big things I talk about in there and this is really just from my experience and what I've heard from others is how to navigate the medical system um, in the healthcare system, because people with chronic pain, everyone I've met has had at least one bad experience, kind of like your guy going yeah. in, not being believed or a doctor kind of having a little bit of know-it-allism and just, you know, not reading the patient patient's chart, not listening to them, um, not giving them other options or, you know, and, so people really feeling frustrated and then getting to that point of giving up. Um, what is your experience with that? And maybe talking about like uh, patient centered care and what the difference mm -hmm. is there. I think we just don't credit the patient enough for knowing their body. And it, it's hard because you'll get a patient who'll come in and say they they read all this stuff on the internet and this is what they have and they try to diagnose themselves which I'm horrible at this because <laughs> I worked in the medical community so I will diagnose myself but we we think we know everything and we don't let them actually speak and let us tell us what works for you what doesn't work for you let's get mm -hmm. creative you know especially in healthcare you're you're almost forced to use diagnostic treatment plans kind of like you were saying sometimes in therapy like you're you're kind of 
you're supposed to follow different treatment algorithms. And so um, when it comes to chronic pain, there's no treatment algorithms. Like there are a couple of them, but beyond that, I think healthcare professionals don't even know what to try, which is why they need experts in this, like a pain consultant, um, you know, the, the pain specialist in this, and then really have a conversation with the patient about what has worked for you? What doesn't work? Why is it not working? But we don't give them the time of day to even explain that and then trust them. So if I were to give advice to the, the medical community, it would be that to take the time to actually learn about the patient, learn about their life, learn about what's what's their past like. And a lot of times, maybe you can even identify areas that are stress that are causing pain or making the pain worse. Like maybe we can get them treatments in other areas. Maybe they need therapy or coaching in addition to the pharmaceuticals that they're getting. We just need to be thinking about things differently. And then as far as the patients to just keep advocating for themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like the doctor you went to or the healthcare professional, find a different one because there are enough of them out there and find the one that's a good fit for you. That's going to advocate for you as well is my, is always my advice. Well, I think, you know, you and I are lucky because we know how to navigate it. You know, we know how it works. We know how insurance works. We know how we can get a second opinion that we're even allowed to do that, you know, because like a lot of times a patient and I've never actually seen the series, but I've heard about like Dr. Death. Do you know about that? that? No. So I haven't seen, I just know all about the story. I've never, there's a podcast and it was turned into a show, but basically it was how this one spine surgeon just eked his way through medical school. Like, and this guy was just horrible. Like he was addicted to drugs and would come into surgeries reeking of alcohol but like he did all of these surgeries and basically how he got through never got fired because too, like, you know, these hospitals need this many surgeons and they get a lot of billing for these types of surgeries. But this guy like killed a lot of people and maimed a whole bunch of them. Right. So I just imagine a chronic pain person going in and then, well, this is the doctor. He's telling me we need to do this surgery and I believe him. And then I just go do it. And then you know, you never know who that is, right? And I think most doctors are, you know, well-intentioned and well-trained. And kind of the spiel that I've come up with in this area is, you know, you have to use your critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And so like you said, right, there's a balance between me going and doing my own research, but I don't have enough context. I I could read a research article, but I don't really have all the training to be able to understand half of it. Um, But, you know, there's things online like different forums. People now are able to learn from each other. Pretty much every condition has a Facebook group where people can share um, information. And that's really valuable, is valuable for me as well with thousands of people on there who could recommend surgeons and, and different things. So it's like when you go to a surgeon and say, hey, I heard about this treatment, right? You can't be your own doctor, but you're like, I've heard about this treatment what do you think? Like, and I did that with my surgeon. He's like, Hey, yeah, this is really cool. This is a new thing coming out. However, you're not a candidate because of this, right? Does that make sense to me? Is what the doctor saying makes sense to me, no matter what advice he's giving, because I think as our, as healthcare professionals, I would say it is our job to explain why, if we are recommending something, we need to explain why and make sense. And if that doesn't vibe with them, we need to give them other, you know, and always show the other side. In my opinion, here are the options and even saying, you know, I had really good doctors. Like, yeah, get another opinion. Um, because, you know, there's so much we don't know about the human body. 
um, except doctors know the most. <laughs> they know the least, least, right? They know the more than anybody. However, it's still, there's still so much we don't know and, and different MDs or you know, DMPs are gonna have different opinions on the same thing. So the doctor can't always be right. So it's difficult, but that's why you got to use like your critical thinking to be able to make those decisions for yourself and what makes sense to you, what feels right for you, but also not guiding your own treatment completely and discounting what the medical professionals say. Does that make sense? Or Yeah, it does. And I, I really, really want to touch on this when you asked me more about patient-centered care. I think that's really what it is. It's giving the patient the options and you know, back in the day, doctors were, were God, right? They knew everything and you just did whatever they said. And mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's healthy or smart because they're human beings and they've got a lot of training, a lot of knowledge. And, you know, some healthcare professionals are better than others, but they've taken an oath to care for you and give you the best treatment that you can. But it's also ultimately up to you and it's your body and you can decide what you want to do. And so I really appreciate the healthcare professionals that give you an option. I had this experience in the ER. Do you want this or do you want this? And I got to decide what I wanted to do as far as my treatment goes. So you empower the patient when you give them that choice. And you could say, you know, I, I really strongly recommend this one because the research shows this and this and this, but I ultimately want you to be comfortable with what we're going to do for you. So you get to make that decision. And that to me is just the epitome of patient-centered care by giving someone the decision power to decide what to do with their body. Yep. And, and the thing is, if you don't do that, they're not going to follow through. If you, just, if you just say, this is what you're going to do, and it doesn't vibe with you or it doesn't make sense to you, you're not going to do it, right? So the outcomes, I've, you know, I looked at some research on this, but the, the health outcomes are so much better when you take this approach as a provider, but also the providers tend to have a better experience too when they do this for some reason. Yes, yes. And, they, and kind of going on what you said and, and my personal experience I mean, again, luckily, I know how to navigate the system pretty well. I, have, I like to think I have pretty decent critical thinking abilities, right? So maybe I took it too far, got like five opinions from five different surgeons, right? And what was good and bad was that they all said the same thing, but it wasn't what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but it made that decision a little bit easier, right? So in the end, I had like three options. Um, the two main categories, one is do nothing or get surgery, right? And they explain the risk benefit. And luckily, I think surgeons have gotten, a, hopefully gotten a better idea of just not pushing surgery, but saying like, look, don't, they're saying like, do not do this surgery until you're ready, until, you know, there's this cost benefit. Because we, they couldn't even tell me what the outcome was gonna be. They're like, this is the research, there's like a 70% chance you'll be better, 60%, you know, there's also a chance you'll be the same and a chance you'll be worse. I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, how that, what am I supposed to do with that info? <laughs> or maybe they scared me a little too much as I put it off for a while, but they were being realistic and also managing expectations. They don't want to be like, oh, it'll be great. And then you come back and be like, oh, I'm worse off. Thanks, doc. Yeah. Um, you know, so they're careful at doing that. But, you know, so they said, here's options. You do this or this. Now, when it got to the point of actually considering surgery, you know, it was interesting because half the doctors recommended one thing, half recommended the other. And it was really, it was just a, a simple difference of like fuse to this level or fuse to this level. 
And that last little fusion would actually take another 20% of mobility or something like that. However, if I went here, I'd have more mobility, but eventually I'd probably have to do another surgery, a smaller one to get this last one infused. Half of them recommend go all the way down, be done with it, just do it. It's going to wear out, just get it done. The other half were like, hey, you're young, you're somewhat athletic or whatever. You know, you, there's all these things you like to do. Do this. You may get five years, 10 years, 15 years. We don't know. Um, but you'll have more mobility. And then later you just do the last one. And I listened to their reasoning as to why they explained it, but all of them said, I'll do either for you. It's up to you. Um, if you want to go here, I'll do it. If you want to go here, I'll do it. My opinion is do this. This is why I think that it's up to you. Right. So that kind of put it in my hands. And it was eventually the doctor who, to me, explained best why he thought to do, I ended up doing the uh, lesser version. Um, and he explained it to me in a way that made sense. So I went with him. Mm -hmm. you know, and they're all great surgeons. So I think at least I could say my experience was good that they um, provided me options and they did a good job explaining. They sat down with me, they talked to me. Um, yeah, so it just not everyone has that experience though. No, and I think it's unfortunate that there's such a time constraint too between, you know, how long you're allowed to see a patient because like you said or alluded to, it's a relationship that you formed with that surgeon that made a difference for mm -hmm. you, that he spent time explaining it. You liked the way he explained it and it was, you felt you trusted him. And so it's, it's sad that we are forced in healthcare to spend so little time with patients and not develop that trusting relationship because especially in a surgery situation, you're really putting your life in their hands for a little while and you want to find someone you trust. And I think they've, I don't, I don't know what they teach in medical school. I know what they taught us in nursing school, which was developing relationships with patients is extremely important, but as a nurse, you'll have more time to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, right? Of the system and how it's set up to not be able to do that. And the incentive to see as many people mm -hmm. to do as many surgeries. And I think we are getting better and the doctors I know kind of the new school coming in, I think I have much more awareness. And even the surgeon I had was like towards the end of his career, you know, he was probably in his sixties for sure. Um, but, you know, still he had that, you know, he understood. And I think he had yeah. that wisdom and that approach. And because so often we make decisions emotionally, you know, even those kind of like, we kind of go with who makes us feel good, which is like probably not the best always, but, but that is also important, right? People mm -hmm. do make, you know, it's like, because a lot of times surgeons could be assholes, right? I mean, they're extremely intelligent, well-trained, you know, but they don't always have the best people skills. Some of them, a lot of them, um, you know, so it's like, do I go with the surgeon who's like the best of the best, but kind of a dick <laughs> or do I go with the one who's maybe, you know, not the Mayo trained, whatever, you know, who's more patient centered. So, but that's just another choice that you have to make and use your critical thinking. And, you know, and I think your intuition as well. I don't think we could fully discount intuition in the process, even though I don't know if there's a way to scientifically measure intuition and using that as a decision, but it's got to count for something, I think. It does, totally. I'd love to know how we can measure that someday. <laughs> yeah, to how we know. I mean, but I think sometimes our intuition, you know, is you know, it's like you walk down the street and you take a look at someone and they you know you're just this the hair on your back or whatever the whatever the term is right mm -hmm. it just 
you know, you get that spidey sense of like, this is not, and oftentimes you are right. Like yeah. sometimes we have to override that system and not stereotype people and, you know, check our biases. But a lot of times our brains are pattern recognizing machines. And uh, so there is really something to, to our intuition. Um, but you also have to, you know, again, that's that balance. You can't go all emotional. You can't go all logic yeah. um, to make that decision. Um, but yeah, it's a, such a great topic. And I appreciate you sharing your experience from more the medical side of things. And I think there's so many similarities in mental health as well. As far as people going to see a therapist, it's not a good fit. Then they just discount it and say, I'm done with therapy. Therapy's no good versus saying, try another person. Try and I know it's exhausting. I know it takes a lot. I know it, you know, but really when you find that right fit, <clears throat> especially for therapy, it's so important because the whole thing is an emotional exchange. Not yeah. that therapists don't have very specific training and skills more than others. Um, but that's, yeah, that's just so important to, you know, explore your options, keep trying. That's why I tell folks with chronic pain is, and that's what you hit on that too, of like trying things like acupuncture and uh, just not giving up, you know, being open-minded, keep trying, because mm -hmm. I, I think eventually people throw their hands up and say, I'm done, you know, I'm done trying everything I do. And I was at that point, everything I do, none of this shit is working. Um, and, but not giving up hope that maybe you can find something. There's so many new technologies and implants and pumps, you know, different things that could help without it being kind of the ultimate blunt instrument of opiates yeah. um, that you could just improve the quality of your life. I think at the end of the day, that's what it's all about is just improving the quality of your life with chronic pain. Because again, I've never seen so much like misery, like mm -hmm. in interacting. And I'm like, and I get it. I've, I've been there. I'm like, I was fucking miserable. Like, yeah. And, and I had every, and everything else in my life was amazing. <laughs> like, like objectively really good, except for maybe a couple little areas that I, I, I would like to see improve. But like, you know, I was like really miserable at points. Other, it's like, and you mentioned it saps your brain chemicals and yeah. Right. One of the things we would ask patients during a pain consult was, "What is your ideal pain number?" And if they told us zero, we had a serious conversation with them to help them understand, like we can't necessarily take away your pain. And I wish I could, but I want to get it to you have the best quality of life possible. And that might still mean you're going to have pain, but we're going to do everything we can to try to improve it. And so a lot of times I feel like we have to do a better job as managing expectations that there's no magic pill out there, especially with chronic pain. There's just, there's never, I've never seen it happen that there's a magic pill or a magic fix. And, you know, it might be like surgery needed to happen in order for you to have improvement, mm -hmm. but like the, we're definitely going to keep working till we improve your quality of life. And I'd say that's, you know, mostly the case. Yeah. It's like the improvement of quality of life. And uh, for cadre, the series, I make mean, I call it 15% better <laughs> right now. That doesn't really sound, I always like to say this other, like, this doesn't sound great. Right. But any, like, but that still is a significant improvement and that may just be a start. Yeah. Right? That may just get you on your way, right. To have that realistic, because so many times people blow smoke up your ass and one of the things with people with chronic pain, kind of from the patient side here, is that the way it affects our relationships and how people 
interact with us differently or how people are like, oh, it'll be okay. Or like trying to get you to put on these rose colored glasses and oh, just get up and move past it. And, and I mean, nothing is more infuriating than that because like when someone doesn't get it, if they haven't been through it, it's like really hard to describe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then there's a lot of the misunderstanding of, oh, you're just a drug addict, you're drug seeking, my son, you know, my, my husband, you know, they, they're just, they don't want to, they're just too lazy. They don't want to do the laundry. So they keep saying yeah. my pain. I mean, I've used it once or twice to get out of shit, but, you know, like, but generally, no, that's, that's not the case. Um, so there's just, yeah, so there's just so much you know, misery on so many levels. And I like what you said before of like looking at other areas, like you're, because a lot of these things are very interconnected, your emotional health, your Mm -hmm. physical health and other areas, your stress levels all will increase your pain. So sometimes it's, if you could take care of some of those other things, you will improve the quality of your life and your pain will go down. And I, and I will say too, you know, you mentioned not really seeing anyone have like a miracle cure and that's yeah, probably true. At the same time, you know, especially to talking about chronic illness and not just pain, like I've seen it happen where like I had one client who had this horrible stomach issue. She had um, a one of those like H. pylori or something, right? One of those like horrible bugs that um, wipes you of or she had to do the antibiotics that wipe you of your gut flora. And, you know, she was older, never had anxiety, crippling anxiety after this. Xanax drinking. This is like a much older person. This never had been a thing for her. And so I was doing therapy. I never felt so like inept, but she seemed to like enjoy coming and like got something out of it. But every week it was just like, I, I'm fucking miserable. I'm just like, oh, you know, what do I, what do I do? Um, but then eventually I just kept encouraging her. Like, I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like mm-hmm. this is associated with their, your stomach hurting. There, there has to be something. So I encourage her to just keep going. And eventually some doctor gave her a medication that helped her stomach. And then she felt better after years of just misery and probably people not listening to her and sending them to me at therapy. Oh, well, we don't know. It's probably in her head. It's probably just anxiety. It's like, no, like there's, there's something going on here. You know, it's, it's so interconnected, but there, you know, and then for me, you know, my, of my story too. I didn't know what was going to happen. I got the surgery and I'm like 90% better. Wow. Like it's fucking bad. You know what I mean? Like I did not expect it, you know? And again, there's, it, I'm going to probably hit it again down the line, you know, and it only goes down from here probably, but like, I mean, that's crazy, you know, from where I was before. So sometimes if you do find the right fit, the right, this, the right treatment, I've seen a lot of people get a, a lot of benefit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes a lot of people quit before they get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was ready to give up or I was too afraid to do the surgery. And, and one of the things too, where the Facebook forums are great, you know, for, to learn from other people who have it, but especially if you have a spine condition, I would kind of caution you to be very careful doing that. And I actually saw a pain psychologist for a while. And it was really cool to see her because she knew all this stuff that I was going through and no one else did. You know, I'm like, I'm like, oh, and then I feel this like, oh yeah, that's a thing. Da, da, da. Oh yeah. Stay off those Facebook groups. And because a lot of times people who are on there are sharing through spinal conditions are just sharing kind of their misery. You know, it's like, oh, I did it and I'm way worse now. And every day is pain and I feel horrible. And I'm reading this. I'm just like, oh my God, like it really freaked me out to go and do the surgery. But, you know, like the psychologist mentioned, she said, look, 
the people who do the surgery and get better, they're not on there. They're like, move on with their lives. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it kind of gives you a skewed view. And um, there's a couple of people that I did talk to on Facebook. This one guy's like, oh yeah, I got this. Like same thing. He's like, oh yeah, I got the surgery. Oh yeah, I feel great. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Um, yeah, I feel great now. You should do it. And I'm just like, who the hell do I believe? Is like, I hope I have this guy's experience. And I, my experience was closer to this guy, except the surgery fucking sucked and the recovery sucked. <laughs> For a week, it was absolute hell. So he was maybe a little too rosy on that. But, you know, the outcome, I, I'm lucky. I kind of have some like survivor's guilt about it too, but I, I'll work through that later. <laughs> but I'm yeah, glad it worked for you. That's, that's such a great, such a great news. Like, and, and to be able to give people hope that like, hey, there are good stories out there of how this works. Mm -hmm. You know, you are yeah. taking a gamble, but there are good ones out there. Yeah, it was a gamble. And, that, and that's why it, it, I felt so powerless and hopeless, uh, like so many others do with this, because the only option really was surgery. And I'm, I won't go into like the whole story of like the evolution of this, but basically a surgeon initially was like, I'm like, well, isn't there any other option? Something less invasive? No. What if I do like yoga or something? Yeah, may help. Uh, is there like chiropractic? No. PT? No. But he was, he was right <laughs> like, <it> was, <laughs> to make me feel good. I, it wasn't what I wanted to hear. So I like searched for the answer that I wanted that just wasn't reality that maybe some of these things could help a little bit. They just didn't for me. Uh, so eventually I'm like, I got to take the gamble and it, and it you know, and it, it could have gone the other way though. It could have, it very well could have, but yeah. I did have some faith that it would at least be a significantly better 30, mm -hmm. 40%. Like, I'll take that, but like 80%, I'm like, holy crap. Like I got, I got really lucky on that one. Yeah. I love what you said. I had some faith that would work. Like they've done studies about the power of belief in mm -hmm. like how much you believe you're going to get better, how much you trust mm -hmm. your, your doctor and like it's, it's hard to study it, but like the power yeah. of the positive thinking in your outcomes makes such a difference. You know, like, again, our brains are just so complicated and um, there's just so many studies that show that like, like people with religion and faith, like do better on all these measures. And it kind of pisses atheists off <laughs> because they know it's true, but we don't know why, you know, and <laughs> it's like, for whatever reason, you know, that mind-body connection, just like, you know, like faith healing, like sometimes that works, right? But nothing is happening. Um, you're like, you're basically hypnotizing someone. So a certain amount of people, you go to a faith healer, the, you know, like the, oh, it'll come down, boom. And like, they'll actually feel better. Some people it lasts for a while, goes away. Some people like literally cures their ailment. Like our brains are insanely complicated and powerful. Yeah. And I actually was going to ask you about that quick because I know for you faith has been a huge part of your journey um with your trauma recovery I know it's like a big part of your life so I was curious to hear more about that and how that came into play and how that you know affects you now and yeah so it's I've had quite the journey on my faith um I'm Christian I believe in God I believe in Jesus after my rape experience I thought there can't possibly be a God how, how does this stuff happen to people, especially since it was such a freak accident, you know, and I was yeah. just the victim of evil, right? Yeah, I did, I did nothing to warrant this. And 
I thought there can't possibly be a God out there because even if he gives us free will, how, how did that person's free will almost kill me? Right. And it took me a long time to, to really like find my belief in God again. After that, it was a pastor that actually said to me, God doesn't make bad things happen to you. He doesn't let bad things happen to you. Yes, he gives us free will, but that was an act of the devil and he didn't leave you that night. And there's been a lot of people that have told me one of the reasons they think I'm alive is because I had the wherewithal to stay calm and to have critical thinking about how to get out of there alive and so I don't know, maybe God was preparing me for this moment that he knew would happen in my life. And I had the skill set I needed to get out of there alive because he had a mission for me afterwards. That's one of the theories I have. But I've seen so many bad things happen in life that I can't really give God credit for those things anymore. And I know that evil exists, but I believe that God is bigger than the evil. And so my faith journey has been rocky at times. And mm -hmm. it's I think that's also to be expected, right? Because we're, I'm believing in something I can't see, but I have so many tangible experiences of God in my life that I can't deny his existence. And like you mentioned about faith healing, I've actually been healed of some chronic illnesses through faith. And mm -hmm. I was yeah. on antidepressants for 26 years and I had diagnosed bladder issues. I had diagnosed chronic migraines, chronic, all of these chronic illnesses, I was told that I would have, um, I'd be deaf for life. And I used to wear hearing aids and I actually no longer wear hearing aids. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> That's why. It's like they said I was going to be a slug on the floor and then I wouldn't hear, you know, and then here you yeah. are. I mean, and that's why it's so the mind body connection is so just crazy. I mean, the placebo effect, I mean, you know, all that is just the placebo is just so damn powerful. You have to account for it in every study. Yeah. You know, it's absolutely absurd. And so that, like, it, it is shocking as it is. Like, it doesn't surprise me. And that's why I think it can be good for people with chronic pain to get some, like, to get therapy and, you know, remove the stress, process trauma, because that's another thing as well of, um, you know, being through, especially like complex trauma over time could really affect chronic pain. So a lot of chronic pain patients or like people with like fibromyalgia, I find, mm -hmm. you know, other types of these chronic conditions often have very traumatic childhoods um, and make them more susceptible mm -hmm. to having these ailments or worse outcomes, more pain, more symptoms. And so sometimes you could hit it from a different angle and find an opening for more healing there. But one of the things that kept coming to mind was like purpose, right? Like having faith, it was like, seems to be in and of itself a purpose for people. And maybe if you're not religious, you know, finding a purpose elsewhere, but it sounds like for you, like, look where your life is now. And, you know, I would assume, you know, I don't know, I won't speak for you, but it sounds, you know, you know, that this, you wouldn't be where you were if you didn't have this happen. Now, I don't know if you're at the point yet where you're like, I'm glad it happened, um, but it sounds like you found some purpose that puts you in a much better place as well. Yeah, I think that's what really takes someone from surviving a trauma to overcoming a trauma is finding the purpose in how you can use that horrific experience for good in some capacity. 
And for me, that's helping other people. And for others, it might be, you know, it doesn't have to be a serving role in life. It doesn't even have to be your profession, but how can you take what's happened to you and somehow turn that evil experience into something good? And no, I'm, I don't see, I'm glad it happened to me, but I don't, I cannot even picture my life without that experience Mm -hmm. because it's just been such a part of who I am and it's not my identity, but it's a part of who I am and why I am the way I am today. So it, it's had a great impact on me that's shaped kind of just my whole life. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, it's so complicated and it, it's so hard to see in the moment, right? If you like, if you went to that girl who was experiencing it and saying, oh, some good's going to, cause you'd be like, fuck you, <laughs> you know? Like, oh yeah. I said that to people. <laughs> yeah. They're like, like, they're like, God, God intended for this to happen to you. He's going to use it for good. And I flat out said, F you. Yeah. No, no, God doesn't, God didn't give me something bad so that he could use it for good someday. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I know exactly what that's like. Yeah. It's, um, well, yeah, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing your story and, um, where, where can people find you? Like if they want yes. more of Carrie, I have a website kerrymanke.com. I am on social media. I've got my author speaker coach page on Facebook. I have an Instagram account. I have a LinkedIn account. So all over the web. I also have the book that I wrote about my sexual assault experience. It's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and also on Audible. And it's, it's a very brief snippet of the sexual assault experience and then kind of how I healed after that. And I'm actually in the process of writing my second book which is going to focus more on my um, experience in like domestic violence and just relationships in general and kind of what that's been like in my life. Oh, that's, that's a great idea. And yeah, it'd be really interesting to see kind of that like second stage, right. Of Mm -hmm. connecting like those future traumas and what that could look like after. So yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Did you end up, did you self-publish those books or did you um, work with a publisher? How did, how did that come about? I worked with a publisher. I, I technically did self-publishing, which just makes a difference on how the money works in the end. Mm-hmm. But I used a publisher local in Minnesota. Oh, cool. That's mm-hmm. awesome. So you, uh, how long does it take for you to, how, like, how much time do you spend on writing your book and how much is dedicated to writing? And Lately, not much. Okay. Um, I like to write in big chunks of time. So I plan on using some of my like Christmas break time to just like lock myself away and write for eight hour days. And once I start, I, I just can't stop. It just comes out. When I, yeah, whenever I start writing, I was up to like 3 a.m. Like, don't touch the computer. Don't you do it. You know, just that you just get zoned in. Yeah. Um, so that's cool to hear. But yeah, Carrie, thank you so much for being on. We'll have to do this again soon. Yes, thank you. It was an honor and a privilege. Mm-hmm.